Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, as world leaders gather in Scotland to discuss the urgent issue of climate change, we'll be joined by the chair of the California Air Resources Board, Leanne Randolph. She is the first black person to head up CARB, which is regularly called the most powerful state agency in California. Absolutely, and with good reason. It's got sweeping powers of regulation and enforcement of environmental laws and policies, like, for example, implementing the state's ambitious climate change change agenda. Randolph took over the agency at a time when black employees said CARB was mistreating workers of color, giving too little attention to environmental justice issues. We're going to talk to Leanne Randolph about all of that and more. Solve but all first, the Marisa, problems. yes, climate we'll change, all racism, solved. it'll be fine. Yes. But first, uh, we had an election yet again this week. And for a change, it wasn't here in California. Uh, other states, including, of course, Virginia, uh, New Jersey, Ohio. And, you know, I think the takeaway, the top line here for Democrats is, Oh, no. Uh, they lost the governor's race, uh, you know, they somewhat surprisingly, but in a way, no. I, I kind of feel, in thinking about this big picture, this is a continuation in a way of what happened in 2020, you know, where they, the Democrats lost a lot of down-ballot races. For the House, they almost lost the majority then. And I think it was, you know, with Trump on the ballot versus Biden, it was kind of, okay, let's make a change at the top. But it, it's clear that the message if Democrats have a message right now, uh, isn't really resonating with suburban voters, white working class voters in some places, at least in these states. But, you know, as we've said before, it's easy to take uh, too much out of these elections and apply it to the next ones. You can't really do that. Yeah. I mean, I think we are always in our jobs very eager to make sweeping pronouncements about the meaning of things. And I just feel like politics moves so quickly now that it's hard for me to think, okay, well, this is what what I think a lot of the sort of punditry is like, oh, this is like Democrats are done in 22. They're going to lose everything. I mean, that could happen, but it could also go very differently. We're seeing, uh, we're, we should say we're taping this Thursday afternoon. There might actually really be a vote in yeah, Congress I, think, I feel today. like we've been saying that for three the Biden weeks. Agenda. We have been. Everyone's been. But it is getting closer. And, you know, we'll see. What does that do? What can Democrats go out and sell when they pass, if they pass those two huge bills? And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, in midterms, you often see Congress flip. So that is sort of, I think the, the, the conventional wisdom is that that is likely to happen. But God, I mean, now and next November is a lifetime. It is. And of course, there's a lot of headwinds at the very moment. Inflation is up. Uh, the, the economy hasn't really recovered. There's the whole supply chain thing. Uh, gas prices are, you know, somewhat high. Uh, and let's just be 
candid here, Joe Biden is not the best salesperson for the Democrats' agenda. You know, he's uh, he just hasn't really been out there that much. And when he is, it's a little lackluster sometimes. And so, you know, no, no question the Dems need to sharpen their message. Sure. But they also need to figure out how to counteract a candidate like Glenn uh, Youngkin in, in Virginia, who... You know, I was thinking about him. He was a little bit like Kevin Faulkner, you know, here in mm. California, you know, kind of who made a big deal of voting for Trump, but that kind of ran away from Trump, um, tried to talk about issues that really resonated with people. But here in California, what did he get, 4% of the vote? Yeah. Um, because Larry Elder was just the 800-pound gorilla. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be uh, 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 some of the issues that came up in that race that it does feel like the McAuliffe campaign did not do a good job dispensing, particularly around these huge divisions we're seeing around how education sort of plays out in our country. Um, I, I do think that those are sort of warning signs. We saw this in 2020 with some of the stuff around policing and criminal justice. Like these are issues that are challenging to talk about in a nuanced way at the ballot box and that do motivate voters on the right. And so the the question is then, you know, how do you sort of approach this? And and does the world look very different in a year because of COVID and because of the progress we're making, at least in some regions on that? Um, it, does the potency kind of go away on some of that stuff? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, nobody knows. And I think there's this, you know, conversation slash argument in the Democratic Party right now. Some on the left saying, well, the reason McAuliffe lost and the governor Murphy and New Jersey almost lost is they were too centrist. They weren't exciting uh, sort of the base and the occasional voters, whereas people like Mark Warner, the Democratic Senator, former governor in Virginia, said, no, that's exactly wrong. We have to get the infrastructure bill passed and we need to do things that matter in people's lives. So, you know, sort of circle back to where we started. We don't really know what it means for 2022. Um, you know, I remember after the recall that Gavin Newsom beat back, we were saying, oh, here's a template for Democrats nationwide. But, you know, no, it worked in California or 2018 when Democrats picked up four House seats in Orange County and then lost three of them two years later. You yeah. Know, and with, I mean, every again, like every election is a moment in time. And so, like, I think part of the reason that was working is that there still was a lot of debate over COVID response. Like, maybe that's not the case in some of these other places in the same way. So do you sort of, I don't know, have that kind of potency? Um, but at the end of the day, like what we also know is that even with these national headwinds for either side, you have every race is about what's happening in that community, right? And so it's going to depend on the individual candidates. I mean, sure, does this maybe bode well for the Republicans who flip seats in Orange County? Perhaps, but does the oil spill down there change things dramatically? I mean, there's so much... On the table. And what's going to happen between now and then? You know, we exactly. just don't know. Yeah. There's so many unknowns. That, so we're here uh, to tell you we don't know anything. Yeah, we're here to tell you we don't know anything. <laughs> um, but it, yeah. I do want to say before we move on um, to our guests who are really excited about a tragic situation in the Bay Area this week. Wilma Chan, longtime uh, leading politician. She was in the state assembly. She's been on the board of supervisors in Alameda County uh, for the last decade, hit and killed by a car. Um, just really sad. And, and I actually think, you know, she, I know, uh, helped sort of pave the way around some of the legislation that actually ended up in the Affordable Care Act under Obama. Um, just a really, I think, well liked person and, and a really tragic situation. She really was. And you could see that just from the, the heartbreak that was expressed by her colleagues and friends uh, over uh, in the last 24 hours since she was struck and killed. And, you know, and again, such a senseless thing. It's, it's not the we keep there was another uh, another um, tragic death by car accident uh, in Alameda not that long ago. And 
So, you know, everybody starts thinking about, you know, safety on the streets and so on. But, you know, she was a real trailblazer. She was the first uh, Asian-American woman and woman to be a majority leader in the assembly. Uh, and uh, as you said, she passed some key uh, health care bill up in uh, Sacramento that helped pave the way for the ACA. So we're all thinking today about her family, uh, those uh, who really cared about her, work with her and, and so on. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Leanne Randolph. She chairs what's often called the most powerful agency in the state, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here, as always, with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Leanne Randolph. She was named last year by Governor Gavin Newsom to head up the California Air Resources Board. It is responsible for a whole lot of things, including implementing the state's very forward-leaning environmental agenda with carrots and a very large stick, I might add. Leanne Randolph, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you for having me. Well, for those who don't follow state government carefully and think CARB has something to do with the Atkins diet or something like that, t- tell, us exi- tell us, give us a sense of the breadth of things that, uh, that your board uh, agency deals with in California. Okay. So we are a 13-member board, and our primary responsibilities are around air quality and climate change. So we adopt uh, regulations related to air quality, primarily mobile sources. Uh, Stationary sources are primarily regulated by uh, the uh, regional air districts, but we also do have toxics regulatory authority in some areas. And um, we are responsible for implementing the state's uh, climate change goals as adopted by AB 32 and SB 32. So that means we, uh, we adopt rules related to all sorts of mobile sources, trucks, cars, off-road equipment, um, volatile organic compounds. So we regulate uh, consumer products that include uh, VOCs. Um, and then of course we have a large suite of strategies related to climate change. So this is a board that was created by Ronald Reagan decades ago, um, and it was really aimed at air pollution. That was a time when, you know, especially I grew up in Southern California. I mean, L.A. was not an awesome place. Um, 
it has grown a lot. And as you mentioned, now climate change came under its purview uh, about 15 or so years ago. Uh, critics say it's too big. It's too powerful. I mean, what do you see coming in relatively new um, from another powerful board? You were on the Public Utilities Commission before. But what do you say to folks who think that it, it's its purview has just grown too big? So the strategies around air quality and climate change are very interrelated. Um, and so all the work we do has a very intersectional quality to it. And so I think it's completely logical for uh, this board to be tackling uh, all of those issues. And, um, and we have just a, a suite of incredibly smart and talented uh, engineers and scientists and policymakers that are really able to dig into this work and make real progress on the challenges that we have. You know, there's been some criticism of uh, of the of the board that Marisa kind of alluded to, which is that you know, in the focus uh, that the agency has on climate change, that maybe it's focusing too much on things that, you know, like electric cars and solar panels and things that maybe don't really affect the direct daily lives of especially people of color. You know, living around polluting, you know, oil refineries, for example. What are your thoughts about that? Well. Um as it relates to CARB's uh, basic regulatory work, so much of what we do is still rooted in our air quality work. Some of the issues that we have tackled this year, as, as, as I mentioned, the volatile organics compound issue, we updated our regulations there. We have a huge regulation we're uh, doing next month on Harbourcraft um, and trying to clean up the ferries and the, um, uh, the tugboats and the vessels that uh, pollute the air near ports. We have um, the at-birth regulations requiring ships to uh, plug into shore power. We have um, the most advanced clean truck rules in the entire country, um, where we are we require our trucks to uh, become cleaner over time and eventually move to zero emission. We have another uh, regulatory package we're going to consider in the fall is our um, truck inspection and maintenance rule, which is basically a smog check program for trucks. And that's in addition to our existing regulatory work around smog checks for cars. And we just had a a board action earlier this year to update the onboard diagnostics rules for checking um, your smog check equipment. So we we are doing a lot of work constantly. Uh, And as it relates to oil refineries, um, that's an example where CARB has the regulatory authority around GHG emissions, but the regional air districts have regulatory authority over oil refineries and emissions from refineries. And the the two main air districts that have um, refinery that have most of the refineries um, are working in this area. And Bay Area Air Quality Management District just recently adopted a new rule regulating refineries in their districts. So there's a lot of work going on statewide. Well, it strikes me like preparing for this and hearing you speak that there's kind of two buckets. There's like the let's save the world bucket and, you know, prevent it from burning down or have, you know, that we can all breathe and drink clean water. And that is a longer term issue that obviously is not only California's. And then there's the sort of immediate issues of these communities, largely communities of color who do live near like in the Bay Area, the Chevron refinery, um, for example, right? And you, as we mentioned, are the first uh, person, uh, Black person to even lead this agency. Um, 
And, and I don't know. I want to know, like, how you think about that sort of balance, whether what, you know, I know you're trying to do it all at once, but especially in communicating to the public, like, what is this about? What is the charge of this agency and how do you all get involved? Because as we know, Chevron, for example, has a lot of political power. Oil has a lot of political power, even in a state that's progressive. Um, and even within these communities, often there's tensions between the job desire for jobs and the desire for clean air. Well, you know, it's interesting because the the desire for jobs and the desire for clean air is frequently presented as an either or. And I think California over the years have shown that it's a both, right? We have cleaned our air and grown our economy at the same time. And I think short-term strategies and long-term strategies are also a both and, right? Uh, you know, the inspection and maintenance rule I just mentioned, that's a, that's a, sh- a short-term strategy that's going to have a real impact on communities that are heavily impacted by trucking like the the ports themselves and then also the inland ports where all these large distribution centers are. So that's an example that's going to have some real world immediate impact. And then at the same time, we are also pushing the trucking sector to clean up their engines we and move towards zero emission. We have um, uh, we not only adopted the advanced clean trucks rule to require manufacturers to clean their trucks, but we are also working on an advanced clean fleet rule, which requires large fleet owners to to buy cleaner trucks and move towards zero emission trucks in their fleets. So we're creating a market and and a regulatory manufacturing requirement at the same time. So it really is an and, uh, both and strategy. (laughs) You came into this job, uh, as I mentioned, there had been some criticism from, in particular, black employees of the agency that uh, uh, they weren't being treated fairly, that uh, issues around uh, environmental justice weren't being taken seriously, that there was too much focus on, you know, white communities and trying to get them to sort of, uh, you know, drive cleaner vehicles and so on and so forth. And I'm wondering, you know, as as a black woman coming into that situation, did you, you know, as you assessed the playing field of what you were inheriting, did you see some credence in, in what those employees were saying in that letter they sent? Um, and, and if so, like, how did it get to that point? Was it a cultural problem or what? Well, first I'll say, you know, I've worked uh, with a lot of state agencies over the years, and and I don't think CARB is is unique in that, um, you know, we frequently do have challenges to uh, make sure that there is full inclusiveness and belonging at state agencies. I think we do an extremely poor job of recruiting people of color and bringing them into the agency and ensuring that they have promotional opportunities. Um, And so I feel like it's a huge opportunity at CARB to improve that. Um, We've uh, tackled that on uh, in a couple different ways. We formed um, the uh, task force within the agency, um, the the DARE task force, and uh, they are working. It's a group of of uh, employees that are led by, you know, high level deputy directors um, who are really strategically looking at ways that we can improve the uh, environment of equity here uh, at CARB. And um, we also uh, appointed, our executive officer appointed uh, deputy uh, uh, executive director Chanel Fletcher, who is um, leading our environmental justice efforts, uh, both internally and externally, ensuring that 
our community Office of Community Air Protection um, and our environmental justice team are uh, building their capacity and working with communities. Um, and then also, as I mentioned, we are looking internally and improving our processes internally as well. And the last thing I would note is that we've had a lot of support from the administration in these efforts. The, um, we are part of the uh, California Environmental Protection Agency, and they have provided us resources and support in terms of employee surveys and analysis to give us the data that, that we need to help us um, change our strategies and, and make positive change at the agency. So I really appreciated that support. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today is Leanne Randolph. She chairs the California Air Resources Board, responsible for environmental initiatives, including implementing the state's climate change policies. Um, we noted at the top that you will be heading next week to Glasgow, Scotland, for this huge summit. Um, I want to ask you kind of, I guess, to start, like, what is the hope from California's perspective of, of being there and sort of how are you going to approach this? I mean, we are not a nation state, actually, as our governor <laughs> often likes to say, we are just a state in a nation. Um, and I mean, we kind of noted before, like we have run into the same challenges in California, even, you know, with the progressive sort of laws here coming up against industry. Um, I know, I'm, this is, I'm getting too long. Scott's going to kill me. But you worked as a as a as a a lawyer advising companies, including Chevron and AT and T, back in the day around campaign finance and lobbying. So, like, you've sat on both sides of this, and I'm just curious, like, how are you thinking about that going in to something that's so much bigger than just the state? Um. Well, that's a lot wrapped up into know, one question. So let me start with let me just start with my goals at, at COP um, because there's several members of the administration that are going and legislators that are going and it's a real opportunity to to talk to folks and exchange information. And I'll just say my kind of uh, key goal um, is I'll be there for uh, what's called Transport Day. Um, some of the days have have themes, um, and I am very interested in engaging with uh, international. Um, both uh, nations and, you know, subnationals like like California on decarbonizing transportation on all sectors of it, um, the public transit, uh, heavy trucking, medium trucking, um, and uh, light duty vehicles as well. And so really looking forward to engaging um, in that transportation conversation, because in California, our 50% um, of our GHG emissions are from transportation if you factor in the um, production um, and refining of oil. So it's a critical uh, space for California to make serious progress. And I'm looking forward to kind of talking to, to folks from around the world about, about how to do that. Just right, following so, up on yeah. something that Marisa <laughs> alluded to, uh, you before you became, we didn't mention this even, but you were also on the FPPC, the political watchdog, before you joined the CPUC. Uh, and then before that, you were working for a law firm. And, you know, among your clients were, I think, Chevron. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, you were, you were advising them, I think, on lobbying and staying on the right side of the law when it came to lobbying. And yet we and now we see them using the law and lobbying so effectively that sometimes it weakens some of the intentions of legislation uh, out of Sacramento or it creates loopholes. So look, looking back on your time, what did you learn from advising these corporations? I mean, in some ways, they, you know, they have the, the best, they, they can afford the best and the brightest in terms of, uh, you know, the legal uh, minds that they have, lobbyists and so on. 
Um, well, okay, I'll mention that uh, in, I also represented BART. Um, <laughs> so they were one of my clients as well. So they weren't all corporations. Um, you know, I mean, my role was really about uh, kind of the level playing field, right? Like making sure people were following the rules, making sure they were disclosing what they needed to be disclosed. Um, and then I think it's really up to the public and uh, policymakers to, you know, judge that activity for what it is, right? We need rules. And when I was at the FPPC, you know, I very strongly um, uh, worked very hard to ensure that there was adequate disclosure of both campaign contributions and lobbying activity, because the public needs to see what what these companies are doing so that they can make choices. And so in the area of, um, you know, ballot measures, for instance, you know, knowing who the big donors are behind these ballot measures um, is, is really, is critical so that folks can judge them for what they are. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think it's really important that folks follow the rules and I was um, more than happy to make sure they did. You mentioned a level playing field. I mean, do you think there's a level playing field between industry and, and communities impacted by climate change? Well, I was saying I was using level playing field kind of in a disclosure standpoint, right? Yeah. It's like you need, we need to know everything that everybody is doing um, and that information needs to be out there. Okay, but more broadly, like politically, do you think that in California there is a level playing field in terms of the influence you see as a policymaker now and somebody who's been on many sides of this um, between, I mean, I'm thinking not just about oil and gas, but like look at PG&E. They just went through a huge bankruptcy and came out largely the same company with a lot of people on Wall Street a lot richer and a lot of fire victims still waiting to get paid out. Like, do you feel like we have a level playing field here in California? I would say that I have not, as a as somebody who is, has worked in administrative agencies and who has been responsible for making decisions based on data and based on analysis and based on the, the legal structure of what I'm deciding, is that I have made those decisions based on those factors and not based on campaign contributions. Mm -hmm. I am not an elected official, um, so I, I don't have that experience. Um, but you're but lobbied all the time, right? I mean, that's part of the job as a CPUC or CARB commissioner. Right, exactly. And my job is to listen to all the points of view from uh, non-governmental organizations, from industry that is uh, going to be regulated by the rules, from communities that are going to be affected by the rules, and from organizations that represent community members. Um, all of the from local governments, that's an, you know, another yeah. uh, constituency I hear a lot from. So my job is to make sure that I am keeping that door open to everyone um, and that I'm also interfacing with our staff um, and trying to understand sort of, you know, they really help me like somebody makes an assertion. I need to follow up on that assertion. I do not take things at face value. Mm. You know, I really need to understand the information that I'm hearing and evaluate it in the larger context. Yeah. But in terms of, say, the legislature, uh, you know, just to use a specific example, AB 617, which was intended uh, to sort of funnel money into communities that were impacted in particular, communities of color by pollution, uh, we're talking like communities like Richmond. And yet there's a lot of criticism that the law was written ultimately to get enough votes to pass it with a two-thirds majority. There's enough loopholes in there and not enough accountability 
ability to hold the companies that no doubt lobbied for those changes accountable. I'm just wondering, I guess we're, you know, we're both asking the same thing as like, wow, can we can can the people most uh, negatively affected by these things really expect a level playing field? So AB 617 is has huge opportunities. Um, we're about three years into the program. And so we're really kind of We've had the first round of, of uh, communities that were selected and then uh, prepared their air monitoring plans or their community emissions reduction plans, as the case may be. Um, and I'll say a couple things. Every community is different. Um, and the community steering process has played out very differently in different communities around the state. But it is, it is a revolutionary program. I think folks don't quite understand you know, what a huge opportunity it, it presents. The, um, it brings community members together with the air districts, with CARB, and we are able to pull in the, uh, the entities that are um, causing emissions in communities and then who also have regulatory um, authority over um, impacts in communities. And where I see the program successfully implemented are communities where the local governments engage actively, where the district engages actively, where CARB staff engages actively, and where the community members engage actively. And, and that is sort of one of the challenges of 617 because it is true that we cannot force uh, agencies that are not controlled by CARB or that are not controlled by air districts. We can't force them to engage. We can't force industry to really engage constructively. So what we can do is create a mechanism where there is a, um, a forum to work through these issues, talk through these issues and come up with solutions. And, um, and then there are also some, some regulatory strategies that we can deploy in terms of working with air districts to uh, deploy more um, control strategies around the emissions sources as they are uh, identified by the communities. All right. So I think there's more to come with this. We'll be watching. Right. We'll, we'll be, be watching. watching. Real quick, you're going to go into Scotland. Real quick, any highlights that when you're not working that you want or to do? Celebrities. Celebrities, yeah. yeah. Anything oh, I just I'm excited to soak up all of the energy of thousands of people all convening to talk about climate change. That's 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 the thing. I'm <laughs> All right. That's a safe answer. Very good. Have fun. Safe travels. Leanne Randolph. Appreciate you joining us today. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos sometimes. I will find you. No, I'll be no. looking for you. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening everybody. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.